We're going to be in 1 Samuel 12 today. Did you enjoy Freeman Tomlin? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. See, here's the deal. I was telling Chuck we made a big mistake because he was so well-received. Man, I'm feeling a little insecure, to tell you the truth. I was kind of hoping Freeman would bomb, and then you would really appreciate us even more. But it backfired. Freeman's a gift. He's our new senior adult minister, grew up here in the church. He was our student minister a million years ago. And over the years, he has just uh, grown and learned and has pastored churches and got his doctorate degree. And I mean, he's really like a total package. And we got him back at Sagemont, which is just a God thing. Wonderful. And his wife, Leslie, did you meet, have you met Leslie? She's a lot better than he is. Leslie's a sweetie. She's just a doll. Anyway, good. I knew Freeman wouldn't. He's a super student of the word. Freeman Tomlin is. So that's really good. All right. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Before we get there, however, I want to tell you about a lady named Julia Johnston. Have you heard of her? No, I didn't either. Julia Johnston. She was born in 1849 in Ohio. Uh, Her dad was a Presbyterian minister. Her a mom, a poet. This lady, who none of us have heard about, wrote uh, many books, lots of Sunday school material, and over 500 hymns. 500. In fact, I will mention one I'll bet many of you have heard of. It's this one, Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. Julia Johnston wrote that in 1911. She had a purpose in so doing. She wanted to show us the contrast in that hymn between human sin and divine grace. She wanted to put those realities together, and she wanted us to be overwhelmed by the second reality, the grace of God, which is greater than all our sin, hence the words. And so she wrote, well, you know the chorus to it, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. That's what she wrote. Here's one of the verses. Sin and despair, like the sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. I wanted to acquaint you with that hymn today because as I was studying 1 Samuel chapter 12, I thought Julia Johnston really captured uh, the message of this particular chapter, God's grace, greater than all our sin. You will see this as we get into the text. Let's do so now, beginning in verse 1, 1 Samuel chapter 12. As you turn there, I'll tell you Israel was embroiled in a conflict with uh, Ammonites, which was a, a people group of Canaanites in the land. And Israel emerged victorious in that particular uh, conflict. And now after it, Samuel calls a general assembly of all the people to a place called Gilgal. Gilgal. That's where they're meeting. Samuel, you recall, had been serving Israel since he was just a little boy. His mom dedicated him to the Lord, and there he served at the tabernacle under the mentorship of Eli the priest. Samuel was a judge in Israel. It's a specialized group of religious leaders. 
And Samuel is the last judge in Israel. So this chapter is a transitional chapter. We're moving from what's called the period of the judges to the period of the monarchy. We're moving from judges to kings. The first king of Israel being, do you remember his name? Saul. So this chapter kind of makes that transition. So that being the background, look at it, verse 1. Samuel said to all Israel, they're all gathered there. Behold, I've listened to your voice and all that you've said to me. And I have appointed a king over you. Grudgingly, he did so. He wasn't in favor of it. Remember, he complained to God. They want a king instead of you. God said, give them whom they desire. And Samuel grudgingly did. Verse 2, he says, and now here, here is the king walking before you. I'm sure he, he called their attention to Saul, who was there at the time. Here's your king walking before you. But I'm old and gray. Why did he say that? Because he, he was. <laughs> and you can't deny it. You get to be old, you can't deny it. I, I mean, how hard you try, it shows. And you get to be gray. And you can't, I mean, that's just the way it is. It's the aging process. He is just admitting to them, I'm at a different phase in my life now. Maybe the final phase. That's what he's saying. No sense faking it. I can't act like a young guy anymore. I'm not a young guy. That's what he said. I'm old and gray. Not only that, he admits to something else. Look what he says. Behold, my sons are with you. I wish he would have been able to say my sons are over you. He didn't say that. They should have been over Israel. Judges like their dad. But they forfeited the position through sin. Terrible. A godly father did not produce godly children. It's not automatic. That's just the way it is. Uh, So he couldn't hide his age, his grayness, nor could he hide the fact that the sons, though they be there, are a constant reminder of sin and its cost. And so he uh, tells them, furthermore, I've, I've walked before you from my youth even to this day. They remember this. He's been with them. He has quite a track record. Again, his mother, Hannah, or Hannah, dead, she, she prayed, oh, God, if you open my womb, the baby produced, I promise I'll dedicate him to you, to your service, and she did. And so she brought her three-year-old at the time and left him at a place called Shiloh. You can go there. It's a real place. Shiloh, there to serve, as I mentioned, under the supervision of the priest, Eli. So he admits to this. In verse 3, he said, here I am. Bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. By his anointed, he's referring to Saul, the anointed king. Bear witness. Interesting. He's inviting the people to judge him. Take a look at my life, says he. Evaluate me. Why is he doing this? Well, what is, is he setting up? Hang in there. You'll see. And so he says, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I'll restore it to you. You see repeated this phrase, what have I taken? You know, whose whose stuff have I taken? He's essentially saying, "I, I haven't been a taker in your midst. I've been a giver. I've served. I haven't exploited, taken advantage, defrauded anybody. Bear witness, says he. Act as my judges now. I'm the defendant. Tell me. Have I done anything wrong? If so, let me know. I will restore it. And they said, verse 4, here's their response. You you have not defrauded us 
or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And, and so there's their verdict, innocent. You're acquitted of any possible charges. You've lived a blameless life in our midst. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed is uh, witness this day that you have found nothing in my hand. And they said, he is witness. He just wants to make sure, wants to nail this down. Let's, let's just get this down for certain. You have found no wrongdoing on my part. Is that true? God's witness, your witness. And they say, no, absolutely fine. Uh, why is he doing this? He is permitting them to be his judge because he's about to be theirs. And he wants to remove any distraction. Namely, when he brings a charge against them, which you'll see he does, he doesn't want them to have the opportunity of saying, who are you to speak to us? Look at the kind of life you have lived. You're pointing the finger at us, but uh, you're guilty. And here they absolve him of, of any guilt. There's, there's no rumor mill. There's no nothing. He's blameless before God, before them. And you see, therefore, he's going to be able to now switch positions. He who was the defendant will now become prosecuting attorney. So verse 6, then Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who brought your fathers up from the land of Egypt. So now take your stand that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and your fathers cried out to the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. He's saying, Israel, let's do a bit of a history lesson because you're prone to forget. You were a slave people. You brought nothing to the table but need. You cried out to God. That's all you had to do. He heard. He sent a deliverer in the form of Moses and Aaron. Evidence of the fact that you've been delivered by God. You're in the land right now. He's speaking to them right now in Gilgal, in the land. But he says this, verse 9, but they history lesson, but they forgot the Lord their God. And so he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. He says, you remember what God did? You, 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 you had nothing to offer. You were a slave people, over 400 years. You had nothing going for you. Your property. You cried out in desperation. Just on that basis, God heard your cry and delivered you. Once again, look where you are now. You're in a place of promise. But what did you do? You went after other gods. You turned your back on God. Because he loves you, he wanted to make things uncomfortable for you. Because he knows when you're rebelling against him and you're out there, it's not going to meet your needs. And so he sent Sisera against you from a place called Chatzor or Hazor. Uh, sent the Moabites against you. Sent, sent the Philippines. Not uh, Philippines. Philistines. <laughs> Sorry, my Filipino friends. I meant the Philistines. Not the, he sent the Philistines against you. Not to destroy you, but to disturb you and remind you that you were wayward and you turned your back on the very God who, who delivered you from slavery. That's what happened. And here's what you did, verse 10. Samuel reminds them. Here's what you did. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtarot. The Baals are the male Canaanite deities. The Ashtarot are the female Canaanite deities. False gods in the land. They say we sinned because we 
have forsaken the Lord. We went after these false gods. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve thee. So what did the Lord do? Verse 11. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around so that you lived in security. By the way, as a side note, Jerubbaal, does your Bible give you an explanatory note about who he is? It's Gideon. You say, how do you get from Jerubbaal to Gideon? That's another story for another day. You can... Read more about this in Judges, I think, chapter 6, chapter 7. But just for now, to keep it short, Jerubbaal is Gideon. So Israel's in trouble. God sends help in the form of human agents, one of which is Gideon. Another is a guy named Bedon. Who's he? Another long story, but probably Barak. Remember that whole thing with Barak and Baal? This is probably Barak. How do you get from Bedon to Barak? It's a long story. It has to do with Hebrew letters and scribal transmission and all the rest and I don't want to go into it. <laughs> it's not that important. Uh, just know these are deliverers. God read, and Samuel puts himself in that category. He said, me too. And, and God sent us and, and delivered you from the hands of your enemies so that you lived in security. And so we're seeing a pattern in Israel's history. Uh, three points uh, I'd like to share with you because I think it's the same pattern in our personal lives and in the, in the history of the church. One, crisis brought about by sin. That characterized Israel. Crisis, largely brought about by sin, Israel's sin. So to in your life and mine. Two, repentance and cry for help. Israel realizes, oh my goodness, we're in trouble because we've drifted from God. And now we've made ourselves subject to predators, Moabites, Philistines, all the rest. It's not that they're not culpable, but we're responsible. This would not have happened, Israel realizes, if we stayed under the protective care of God's fold. Like Israel, like us, we go out and do our own thing, and oh my goodness, sometimes it leads to crisis. So there's crisis, and then God allows us to be miserable, as he did Israel, and it brings about, hopefully, repentance and a cry for help. And then the third point, deliverance. By God, usually through a deliverer, as mentioned here in the text. First there was Moses and Aaron, verse 8, And then these other people, verse 11, God's plan, deliverance through a deliverer. What an out-of-balance relationship Israel has had down to this very day with God. Israel brings to the partnership sin. God brings to the covenant grace. In fact, it's irrational grace. It's grace greater than all her sin. You would think God would come to a point when he would say to Israel, enough getting into crisis because of your own stuff, enough crying out to me, enough token repentance, enough me delivering you, I'm done. You see, if God said that, then we'd have to change the words of that hymn. Sin greater than all God's grace. See, we'd have to invalidate that hymn and a lot of scripture. Like the New Testament truths such as these. Uh, Though sin abounds, grace superabounds. Cut that one out. Or how about this? Though we be faithless, he remains. Got to get rid of that one. You see? This is kind of important. This is not a history lesson. This is about the nature of humankind, human nature, and divine nature. Human nature, sin. God's nature, grace. Greater than human sin. 
So in spite of the fact that this is a repetitive pattern with Israel, God's response is always, you've turned back to me, I will deliver you. I'm emphasizing that because it's not different with you. You sin. The real issue is not that you sin. You will sin. You are a sinner. Me too. That's the way it is. We're inclined to do it. The real, real issue is how do we deal with, with it when once we commit it? The real issue is I've got to run back to the Savior. I've got to accept his forgiveness and grace and get back with the program. So, so you see this rather out-of-balance relationship. Israel brings sin. God, God brings grace. That's the pattern. And, and so it goes on, verse 12. Samuel says, when you saw that Nahash, king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us, although the Lord your God was your king. Ah, now we know something. We're given information we had not been uh, told before. Earlier, we found that Israel wanted a king. Why? Well, it wouldn't be like everybody else. That's all we know. Now we know the specific circumstances. Israel is under attack by Nahash and the sons of Ammon. It's an impending conflict. Israel's going, oh, no. We need help. Give us a king. That's the circumstance. Instead of running to God, the king above all kings, she said, I want a human. I want someone to replace our divine king. I mean, every other nation has a king. Why can't we have a king? A king to defend us against Nahash when God was her shield. So that's the circumstances under which Israel demanded a king. Now, therefore, verse 13, here is the king whom you have chosen. I imagine Samuel pointed to Saul, who's there as part of the general assembly. They're at Gilgal. This is real stuff. People gathered around. It's kind of an amphitheater effect where even without amplification of his voice through electronics he could be heard the new king Saul is there <laughs> I can see Samuel just pointing right to him here here is the king whom you've chosen whom you've asked for behold the Lord has set a king over you there he is you know he he's he's got no 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 problem with Saul as a person it's the whole concept of exchanging God for Saul that troubled Samuel he had no personal beef with, with Saul, at least at this time. So he's pointing out, his, you know, he, here's the guy you demanded instead of God. He's right there. And then he says, in Saul's hearing, verse 14, if you will fear the Lord and serve him and listen to his voice and not rebel against the command of the Lord, then both you and also the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God. And if, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord but rebel against the command of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers. He gives them options. Obey or disobey. That's it. If you obey, things will go good for you. If you rebel, they're not going to go good. That's what he says. And then he says this. Even now, take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Now, I'll tell you what I think is happening. He preaches an impassioned sermon, one of his last he tells them, remember the past. You had no reason to rebel against God who was nothing but, but good to you. Look what he did for you. And yet, you were tempted. You were inclined to go after false gods. And when, you, when it backfired and you cried out to God because the false gods don't hear you, the true God still heard your cry and he delivered you. 
And yet you keep going after these false idols and stuff like that. In fact, instead of relying on God, you want a king to help you to deal with Nahash and the Ammonites and, and all that and all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, don't do that. Learn from your history. Break the pattern. Crisis. Cry for help. Deliverance. Stop bringing about uh, bringing crisis on yourself. Get with the program. If you obey, it'll be cool. If you disobey, you're going to repeat the pattern. For crying out loud, history is going to repeat it. That's what he said. Man, I bet it was an effective sermon. It's outdoor sermon. You got everyone there. Got the kings there. Everyone. Good night. I bet you Samuel really got there. But I think Samuel was thinking, you know, I don't think I don't think this worked. I think he's saying, like a lot of sermons, eh, I think it's going in one ear and out the other. He said, they've heard some stuff they needed to hear. But I think they need to see some stuff to really drive it home. So, verse 17, he says this. Is it not the wheat harvest today? Anyone have any idea what months the wheat harvest is in in Israel? Well, it's May and June. Excuse me, in June, like the last part of May into June, wheat harvest. What distinguishes that time is that there's no rain. Doesn't rain. Nothing like that. Wheat harvest time. There is a rainy season in Israel, but it's not during the wheat harvest. Everybody knows there's no rain during the wheat harvest. And they say it's a good thing because rain will, will ruin the crops. We don't need the rain. We're harvesting the stuff now. They're in the wheat harvest right now. It's May or June. And so, and so Samuel says to him, is it not the wheat harvest today? And they're perplexed, I'm sure. They say, well, yeah, it's obvious. Yeah, yeah, it's the wheat harvest. So here's what he says. I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. Now, how did he know this is going to all work out? I don't know any of that stuff. I'm just reading what the text says. I'm going to call to the Lord that he would send thunder and rain. Folks, this is meteorologically unusual, improbable. doesn't happen. You don't get thunder and rain during the wheat harvest. I'm going to do this. I'm going to call to the Lord that he does this very thing. It'll be exceptional. Then you will know. You heard my words, but then you will know and see. That your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord by asking for yourselves a king. He gave a good sermon. He said, I got to drive it home. Oh, God, give me a good object lesson. I need something visual. Here's the visual. Thunder and rain comes. You know what they're thinking? Oh, no. That God, that almighty God, whose thunder and rain could destroy our crops, that almighty God could destroy us. We have messed with him. We have taken it for granted. In fact, he's been so approachable and available to us, we kind of thought he's like a pal. He's one of the boys. God's one of the boys. You know, he's the big guy upstairs or he's the co-pilot. Therefore, what he says is optional. We're going to exercise the option of doing our own thing. We'll put God on the shelf. And then you get thunder and rain during the wheat harvest when they're not supposed to be thunder and rain. You go, Oh, my goodness. This God who is not limited to nor subject to the rules of the atmosphere, that's the God we messed with. And they are suddenly 
being reminded, we're the creature. He's transcendent creator. He could snuff us out. Oh, no. And so it says in verse 19, then all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God so that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil by asking for ourselves a king. So it worked. One of the reasons why thunder and rain got their attention is that it took place during the non-thunder and rain time of year. So let me just, as a sidelight, we've just come through a terrible season of hurricanes. Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, other places. Coupled with some solstices and, you know, stuff. And man, it has just brought people out with all kinds of opinions, predictions, prognostications about what God is telling us. People are reading all kinds of stuff. Uh, not, not a lick of which has proven to come true. I mean, all kinds of speculative stuff. I didn't say there weren't signs of something. A surely reminder of the might of Almighty God with whom we have to make do. But I'm not sure if God is wanting to tell us too much more, and I'll tell you why. If God wants to get our attention, why would he send a hurricane during the hurricane season? <clears throat> if he really wants to get our attention, he sends thunder and rain during the wheat harvest. Folks, we had hurricanes during the hurricane season. And while we had hurricanes here and we think it's the end of the world, people having tornadoes and hurricanes and that stuff all over the place, all over the world, all the time. And you get book crazy book writers whose books you buy who are prognosticating all reading all kinds well on the 7th of the 23rd of the 16th and the moon which is come on god does not give questionable cues and clues when he wants to deliver the goods through some atmospheric deal you don't need to speculate about it. You're getting thunder and rain during the wheat harvest. You're not getting hurricanes during the hurricane season. That's what they're known for. We call them the hurricane season because hurricanes. So anyway, this was different. And it kind of caused the people to acknowledge their sin and repent. And all the people say, Samuel, please pray to God. We've really done wrong over here. And verse 20, Samuel said to the people, don't fear. You know, I can tell you from the English, uh, excuse me, the Hebrew grammar, too late. They're already fearing. How do I know that? Because the, the Hebrew words, it actually has this sense. It means stop doing what you're already doing. It's not to prevent them from fearing. It's too late. They already went there. He's saying stop doing what you're doing. By the way, this do not fear thing, that is the most frequently occurring commandment in all the Bible. Did you know that? Frequently, most frequently occurring commandment in all the Bible. Stop being afraid. I think God tells us that because we're prone to do it. We worry. We have anxiety. We fear tomorrow. In fact, we live in a what-if reality. What if this happens? What if that happens? And you know what we get? Not one lick of grace. Because God says, nope, I promised you daily bread. I'm not, I'm not giving you a supply for today, enough for tomorrow. I, I need you dependent on me tomorrow too. Give us this day our daily bread. So God gives us no grace 
to live in the what-if reality, what's going to happen in the future. He gives us no grace to worry, to be anxious, to fear. I'm not preaching to anyone. I got the same dilemma. That's why this, this commandment is, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Live for today. Ask God to give you daily bread. If you get another day, he'll give you bread then too. <laughs> if you get another day. Maybe it just makes no sense to worry about tomorrow. You may not even have it. Now listen, the people's fear of God here was a good thing. It's good for us to be, them and us to be in this spot, but not for too long. It's good to be reminded of the bigness of God from time to time because we know of the nearness of God. We emphasize the nearness of God. This is the essence of knowing Jesus Christ. God came near. Emmanuel, God with us. That is the distinctive of our faith. So we emphasize the nearness of God. Maybe we overemphasize it because we underemphasize the bigness of God. Got a hold of two intention. Yes, he came near. He's approachable. He's the lamb. But he is transcendent deity, alpha and omega. He has no beginning nor any end. He spoke all things into existence without any labor or perspiration, just the mere power of his word. He's the only all-sufficient one. He's not my co-pilot. He's not my buddy. He's not the big guy upstairs. He's transcendent deity. He's a consuming fire. I couldn't stand in his presence because he's unapproachably holy apart from Jesus Christ who came near. You see? So it's good to be in this spot where you fear the greatness of God. We ought not take lightly the option to sin or not to sin. No. Do you know who we're sinning against? So it's good to be in that spot, but don't stay there too long. Once you get it together and realize, whoa, oh, God, I've got to get it together. I've been out of balance a little bit. I've been taking you for granted. I've been taking your familiarity and closeness a little too for granted, and, and I'm underestimating, underestimating your holiness. Once, once you get that together, now move past. And charge into the throne room of grace. That's exactly what Samuel tells them here. So first, do not fear. Now look, you have committed all this evil. Why do you say that? Because when he said do not fear, they might be tempted to think, hey, maybe we didn't sin that badly. That's why Samuel says don't be afraid. Maybe Samuel's going to say, he, he said do not fear, part A. Part B, eh, your sin is not that bad. So he dispels that possibility. He says, I've told you not to fear, but it's not because your sin is not great. You have committed all this evil. By the way, this is one way people, us, deal with sin. Instead of acknowledging it, confessing it, and looking for a sin bearer, we try to minimize the reality of it. How do we do it? We try to sprinkle into our lives some good deeds. Then we hide behind the good deeds. The good deeds persuade us we ain't that bad. That's what Hollywood does. I mean, Hollywood would get together and put on a concert for the victims of Hurricane uh, Harvey. And then that night, they'll sleep with one another. Regardless of marriage, gender. They'll smoke, they'll toke, they'll shoot up, shoot up they'll snort. I'm, I'm painting with a big broad brush, aren't I? Yeah, well, I am. Try to do some humanitarian efforts, and that'll persuade you. I'm not that bad. I don't, I'm, I'm not a sinner, and I don't need a savior. Look at I'm good. That's one way to deal with it. So Samuel won't let him do that. He said, "Move, 
I told you not to be afraid. I'll tell you why you shouldn't be afraid, but it's not because you haven't committed all this evil. You have committed all this evil. I think I told you this story. I was uh, in the military, and I was a military counselor. I was a military mental health clinic. A lady comes in. She looked depressed. So how does someone look depressed? You can tell when an adult is depressed. You know, they're flat-footed. There's no bounce in the step. You know, your posture is down. It was just obvious. She goes in to see a social worker there who I worked with. She comes out 45 minutes later. For crying out loud, her old countenance changed. Head is up, got a bounce in her step. Everything's cool. I'm thinking, whoa, this guy's a miracle worker. So I went to him and I said, hey, hey, what's up? She came in one way, she left another. What's the secret of your success? He said, well, she's a married woman, raised kids. Uh, she's having an affair with her, the guy next door, next door neighbor. She feels guilty about it. I said, yeah. And he said, well, I told you she doesn't have to. Because, yeah, you know, she's given most of her life to meeting the needs of others. It's about time she'd do something for herself. Well, she says, that's what he did. He said, don't be afraid. You have not committed all this evil. That's what the counselor said. See? Well, Samuel loves people too much. He, he couldn't negate the reality. He said, do not fear. You have committed all this evil. But then he says, look what he said. Yet. See that three-letter word, yet or but? You may have something like it. That is huge. I mean, I put like major circles around that and all this stuff. Yet. Look at that. You have committed all this evil. Yet. Meaning there's like an alternative. There's an alternative here. Yet. Do not turn aside from following the Lord. You see it? This is a reality, human sin. Yet, the door to you walking with God has not been closed. Why? Grace greater than all our sin. Part A, sin, human sin. You have committed all this evil. Part B, yet, do not turn aside from following the Lord. The door is open. Why? Grace greater than all our sin. See? The issue is not that we sin. We do sin. The issue is our response to sin. Do we let our sin carry us further into sin? Or do we let it bring us to the Savior? That's the deal. So, so that's what it says here. Don't turn aside from following the Lord. with Serve the Lord with all your heart. Why? Look, verse 21. You must not turn aside. Why not? For then you would go after futile things which cannot profit or deliver because they are futile. Wow. Does Samuel know human nature? Here's the deal. If you cut yourself off from God, who is the source of an abundant life, you still have needs. You got to have them met somehow. You're going to go after futile things, therefore, to meet your needs. But those things cannot profit or deliver. In other words, you're going to look for love in all the wrong places. That's what happens. That's why God, through Samuel, begs us not to sin. But then, when you do, it's more like a when than an if, you've got to know how to deal with it. If you don't respond to your sin rightly, you don't understand my grace. You ought to get it together and be a little fearful of who you just sinned against. But now get over it. Do not fear. You, you've committed all this evil. I'm not minimizing it, redefining it, or anything like that. Can't excuse it, justify it, nor explain it away. However, don't turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Why? Because if you don't do that, 
you're going to be looking for uh, satisfaction of your needs in all the wrong places. It'll be an exercise in futility. It'll be worse for you. That's, that's kind of what, what Samuel's getting at. And then you get this, verse 22. For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Now, we've got to camp out on that for a second. That is huge. If I was a Bible underliner or something, I'd go crazy with that one. For the Lord will not abandon his people. Because his people ain't that bad. It does not say that. His people are worse than they think. For the Lord will not abandon his people because his people have great potential. They just made a few mistakes. No, they rebelled on purpose. For the Lord will not abandon his people because his people have made promises. You know, like New Year's resolutions. Nope. For the Lord will not abandon his people and then the reason given has nothing to do with his people. It has to do with his character. For the Lord will not abandon his people, it says right there, on account of his great name. Now that's a Hebraism, which means the character of the person named. It's not a specific name. It's the character of God. The character of the people is terrible, inexcusable, inexplicably sinful. That's the character of the people. But the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his character. What characterizes him? Grace. Greater than all our sin. That is huge. Um, there's a growing interest today in a theological perspective which says, no, Israel's sin is greater than God's grace and therefore God has replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology or supersessionism. The church has superseded Israel. Israel was a failure God's given the church a shot now. It's also called fulfillment theology. It got started with Israel, but he fulfilled stuff through the church. Uh, call it what you will. It's just an error. See, here's the deal. If God has abandoned Israel because Israel's sin reached such a great proportion that it was greater than God's grace, you are next. You just cut your throat, your spiritual throat, if you buy into replacement theology. The only reason why we have a record of God's dealings with Israel is to show us his dealings with us. That's all. Israel reveals human nature. Israel reveals God's nature. Human nature, sin, even under the best circumstances. My people have been the most spiritually privileged people group on earth. What have we done with it? It's great sin. God's response. In the words of that famous hymn, grace greater than all our sin. How do I know this? The Lord will not abandon his people in the context it's Israel on account of his great name. Folks, uh, if you ask me, what assurance could you have that God will never leave you or forsake you, I'll answer with two words, the Jew. That's your assurance. 
There should be no Jews alive today. We do not deserve to be here. Greater nations have tried to eradicate us. I'll get you there in a second. Greater nations have, have, have tried to snuff us out. Where are they? Where are the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians? Where are the Nazis? Now, I know we've got modern-day Nazis, but I'm talking about the mighty Third Reich. Where are they? They succeeded in slaughtering six million of us, but did you know six million survived? How'd that happen? How do six million displaced Jews survive the mighty Third Reich? We don't have any army, guns, stuff like that. We got nothing. How does six, there are 14 million Jews in the world today. How? Israel was reconstituted as a modern state in May of 1948. You tell me how. How does a nation displaced in excess of 2,000 years find its way back to its homeland? You tell me in 1973, during what's called the Yom Kippur War, Israel was attacked on the Golan Heights by hundreds of Arab tanks. Israel had just a few up there. Israel won. Now, if you want to play games and say Israel's military is so great, you're missing the point. Those Jews are so smart. Well, man, you haven't met my family. <laughs> but a minute, you got it all wrong. You got it all wrong. And nothing to do with it. I'll tell you the explanation. For the Lord will not abandon his people. But it's not, it's not you. You're part of the new covenant. You're new covenant people. It's about you. The Lord will not abandon you. That's why we run to Jesus even when we sin. For, for We accept his forgiveness. We confess our sin. We don't run away from Jesus because we sinned. We run to him. We run to him. And he will deliver us. He, not through Moses, Aaron, Jephthah, and all these others, through Jesus. God's agent of deliverance is always a person. God became a person. We run, we run to Jesus. You see, as with Israel, so too with us. But no, it's not just God grudgingly saying, oh, man, Israel, you can hold me to this. You know, it's kind of like a contract. I signed on the dotted line. I said, you know, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Boy, I wish I didn't make that commitment because you turned out to be such a bunch of scoundrels. But, you know, my word is my bond. Nuts. All right, I'll stick to it. No, no, no. Look at the next phrase. First, the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name. Now, look at this. Because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Whoa. That, if that's hard to swallow, it's because it's irrational. Because our affection and love for one another is contingent on the lovability of the object of our love. Well, I'm presenting to you the most unlovable people group on earth. And God says, not only will I not forsake you because I gave my word, I won't do it because I don't want to. I've been pleased to make you a people for myself. But I didn't say God's pleased with Jewish sin any more than he's pleased with Gentile sin. I'm just telling you, he's really pleased with those who he's rescued and redeemed. Why? He sees the end from the beginning. He sees the product he will finish, us. So the Bible says, one day we will be presented before him, holy, blameless, or spotless, yes, and beyond reproach. Now, I'm not that way, and neither are you. But God told us, he's producing that. It's redemption. And he loves the fact 
that he is rescuing from the presence, power, and penalty of sin an undeserving group called believers in Jesus Christ who he'll never abandon and who, in fact, he's he's not pleased with all that we do, but he's pleased with us. He's really our father. God loves being a dad. He loves being our dad. And he sees our potential. That won't always be the case. I'll get you through your rebellious teenage years, and you're going to be a matured adult one day, (laughs) spiritually speaking. The Bible says he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God is pleased with this process of rescuing ones such as us. And how do I know all this is going to be true? This sounds so good. It sounds too good to be true. Yet God knows it. So he gave us a visual, an object lesson, a life-size deal, the Jew. Some people say, why, why you Jews are so rich. You Jews are so smart. You know what that's called? Racism. When you characterize any people group, positive or negative, as different than any other, that's racism. (laughs) We're not different than anybody else except for this thing. God has chosen to demonstrate to every people group the human condition and his response to it. The human condition, under the best of circumstances, we will sin. Against God. But when we're at our worst, he's at his best. And he will reveal his grace. Don't make it a big theological deal. Here's the real object lesson. The Jew. Look at how God has responded to Jewish people. And that's your assurance as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says Jesus has torn down the barrier, the divining wall between Jew and Gentile. Made us one new man. There's no second class citizens in the body of Christ. No second class citizens. However, I do want to um, depart a little bit and get on my hobby horse. See where it says the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name? That's why replacement theology is from the pit of hell. Because replacement theology is saying Israel's capacity to sin is greater than God's capacity to save. That's what it's saying. Replacement theology is saying there'll be a certain point when Jewish sin has been so great, its volume has exceeded the grace of God. You see what that's saying? It's blasphemy. Blasphemy. And it says right here, he's not going to abandon his people on account of his great name. For the Lord has been pleased to make you people for himself. Not only is replacement theology the wrong response to Jews. Now, why not bring this up? Because the early church fathers all held to it. Chrysostom, Luther, all these people. God is through with those stiff-necked Jews. Now it's us. We're the new Israel. What are you talking about? You're a bunch of skunks just like we are. What are you talking about? You stink to the high heaven just like we do. That's human nature. If God has, God's divine nature has been extinguished because of our human nature, then you're next. So, So what is the right response? Uh, to Israel and the Jewish situation. Well, let's see what Samuel did. Verse 23. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. But I will instruct you in the good and right way. Two things Samuel said. I'll intercede and instruct. 
Others today are saying, I'll kick the dust off my feet. I'll turn against Jews and I'll turn against Israel. That's not the right response. Samuel says, fully aware of Israel's sin, he said, I won't sin against God by ceasing to pray for, me, for you and instruct you. Instruct them what? He'll tell them truth. Truth. I think we have an obligation to share the gospel with every people group on earth. None, no soul being more important than another. Don't leave my people out. That's all I'm saying. You say, who would leave out? Are you kidding me? There's a famous person in our state, and I don't need to go into his name because I'm trying to be a good boy. He loves the Jews so much, he won't offend them with the gospel. He says they don't, need to, they don't need Jesus. Gentiles need Jesus to be saved. Jews are saved through Moses. You might as well put us in a gas oven and extinguish us. Uh, 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 you withhold the way of salvation from us. You've destined us to eternity of hell. You'll do worse to us than the Nazis ever did. The gospel, if the gospel doesn't apply to everyone, it applies to no one. The Roman Catholic Church uh, issued a policy that says it will no longer seek to convert the Jews. The Catholic Church is trying to repent for abandoning my people during the Holocaust and all that stuff. Well, I'm not asking them to do that. But now they're committing an even worse transgression. No need to offend our dear Jewish friends by telling them they need Jesus. Can I tell you about dear Jewish friends? We don't need friends. We need a savior. So do your people. No people group is undeserving of Jesus. No people group deserves him more. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Samuel's response to stiff-necked, sinful, please, I hope you don't see me ever defending my people against their sin. I am not. I'm ashamed to admit we have squandered our spiritual privilege. We have brought predators upon ourselves. We are responsible. I got all that. I do not think we're better than anybody or anything like that. Please don't misunderstand. But I will defend is God's insistence on never abandoning his people. Never abandoning his people. Our sinful character does not overwhelm his gracious, his gracious character. And the proper response to, even to stiff-necked sinful Jews is don't cease to pray for them. Don't cease to bring good news to them. There's a command, not a suggestion, a command in the Bible. It's this, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That is not a suggestion. It's a commandment, just like the Ten Commandments has the same force. And so that's why Samuel says, oh, God, I won't sin against you by ceasing to pray for them. He understood Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The only city in the Bible that we are specifically commanded to pray for is Jerusalem. Doesn't mean you don't pray for other cities. But the only city we are specifically commanded to pray for is Jerusalem. What does it mean to pray for the peace of Jerusalem? Two things. One, pray that Jewish hearts would be open to accept the Prince of Peace, Jesus, now. Pray that Jewish people would be ready to welcome him and open their gates when he returns the second time. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray that Jewish people would respond rightly to his first coming so that they would be ready for his second coming. That's a mandate. Why? To the glory of God. 
If God brings forth Jewish people, now you're not saved just because you're a Jew. Hope you, I'm not saying that. You're only saved through the Savior. But God wants to bring forth a remnant of Jewish believers for his name's sake. Listen, in the Old Testament, there was a time when Moses has a discussion with Israel. And the option is to wipe out all the Jews and make a new nation through Moses. Moses is smart enough to say, well, God, wouldn't you be tempted to say, whoa, this is very cool. I get rid of all these creeps and I got a whole new people group over which I'm the head. Moses doesn't fall prey. He said, well, God, if we do that, then people will say, you were not able to bring these people forth. Isn't Moses cool? Moses realized God had nothing to do with these Israelites. It has to do with your name, your character. If you don't succeed in fulfilling your promises and bringing them into a place of promise, people will say, God can't be trusted. You see that? It's the same thing today. If God's through with the Jews, that means he can't be trusted. If he can't fulfill his promises to the Jews, if his grace is not greater than Jewish sin, he can't be trusted to forgive your sin. Don't you see how serious this is? It's pretty serious. Anyway, there you have it. Okay, look. So, so verse 24. Only fear the Lord, serve him in truth with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you will still do wickedly, both you and your king shall be swept away. And I ask you, this is a rhetorical question. How do you explain a God who is mighty in power in one second and mighty in compassionate and warm grace the next minute. That's how he is. And our responsibility is to hold those two aspects of Almighty God in tension. He is the God of all grace. You can come near and not be afraid, but don't mess with him. He's transcendent deity. He's not my pal. <laughs> He's my creator. And then, uh, secondly, <laughs> just once again, as with Israel, so with us. Israel's nature reflects human nature. Israel's nature reveals divine nature. Grace greater than all our sin. Listen, let's close. By singing just that chorus to that hymn. Here are the words. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Let's sing it. Help me out here. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Here's the point. Grace that is greater than all our. Thomas Akempis said this. They travel lightly whom God's grace carries. May God's grace carry you through this next week. God bless you. May the Lord